Let us again join our hearts in prayer as we prepare to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed. Let us pray. Your Word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to rightly understand it as it is read and proclaimed. Accomplish in us all your holy will. Put to death within us all that is not of you and lead us into your truth, we pray. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the sake of your great name. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading begins this morning in Acts chapter 9, the second part of verse 19. You might have a subheading there, Saul proclaims Jesus in the synagogues, and we'll continue through verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. For some days, he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how On the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. The Apostle Paul will recount in Acts 22 that... He not only asked, who are you, Lord, of this voice that spoke to him on the road to Damascus, but once he learned that it was the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to him, he also asked the next obvious question. What shall I do, Lord? When Jesus is established as the sovereign Lord, the Son of God and the Messiah, who has died a sacrificial death for our sin, been raised to life from the dead, and reigns in power at the right hand of God, then we should want to know how it is we are called to submit ourselves to Him and serve Him. We said last week that salvation is not just from something, but that it is 
for something. We are saved for a life of righteous living according to God's word, lived to the glory of God. And Scripture makes clear that even as each of us is called to live according to God's revealed word in Scripture, following His clear commandments to us, each of us is also given specific gifts to be used in serving the Lord. These are gifts that are to be used, according to Paul, for the sake of the church. Paul tells us this in places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. Paul states that those who belong to Christ have been given a variety of gifts and called to different tasks to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul encourages the church having gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, let us use them. Paul's calling was to be a missionary to the Gentiles, which involved the use of his giftedness in areas like evangelism, preaching, pastoring, teaching. And God had called him to this task, and Paul was uniquely gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill this role. And each of us are called to participate in the body of Christ using gifts we have been given by the Holy Spirit. So just as Paul did, once we have answered the who question for ourselves, once we have been convicted in our hearts and minds that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and we have placed our faith in him, then we must ask the what question. Lord, what would you have me to do? And in asking this question, we should seek to discern and understand the gifts we have been given and how to use them. A calling to ministry, you see, isn't just limited to those who are considered church professionals. They aren't the only ones who do ministry. The work of the church isn't just reserved for those who get paid to do it. This is a lie from the pit of hell that aims at making the church impotent in its task of serving the Lord as a priesthood of all believers. Unfortunately, it is a lie that gets reinforced in the church in the United States. We are often viewing the church just like another nonprofit or business. The reality is there is no such thing as a church professional in the sense that so many think of it. That the responsibility of the work of the church is only done by the professionals. That it only gets done by the pastor who acts as a CEO. No, the, the work of the church belongs to all Christians. Each follower of Christ is responsible for ensuring that the church Functions that needs are met, that worship continues, that the gospel is proclaimed, that discipleship happens, that people are cared for, that the kingdom work marches on. No church can function to its potential. And more importantly, it doesn't function as God created it to function if each member isn't participating. 
I'm thankful that here at Covenant there is a strong understanding of this biblical principle. In a little while we will have new members come forward and take the vows of membership. One of the vows that each person takes when they join this church is this. Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God in its ministry to others to the best of your ability. If the church is going to function as the Lord designed it to function, then it requires full participation. It doesn't matter if you are 8 years old or 88 years old. You are called to share your gifts in ways that you are capable of sharing them. Those of you with gifts of teaching must be willing to teach. Those of you with gifts of encouraging must encourage. Those of you with gifts of hospitality must share them in making others feel welcomed and loved. Those of you who are especially gifted to serve in skilled ways must serve. Those of you with gifts of administration should help lead in the formal organization of the church, so on and so forth. Otherwise, you aren't being a good steward of the gifts that God has given you, nor are you living out your God-given calling. So each of us needs to understand our role in the church. We all need to understand how the Lord calls us to use our gifts within the church for the building up of the body. But we also shouldn't limit our gifts simply to what is done within the church community. Our callings go beyond the church community. They are to make the name of the Lord great out in the world and Just because you may not be called to be an evangelist or a missionary like the Apostle Paul doesn't mean that you aren't called to serve the Lord through your work in the world. You might be trained or gifted to be a nurse or a lawyer or a plumber or an IT professional or a doctor or a small business owner or a salesperson or a stay-at-home parent or an accountant. The Lord calls you to serve Him through this work. You might be retired from what you did professionally. It doesn't matter because the Lord didn't just give you gifts to be used to make money. It's part of His calling on your life to be used for His glory. Therefore, we shouldn't look at the Apostle Paul's life and not be able to make connections between his life and our own simply because he had a different calling. We should remember that the Apostle Paul was a tent maker by trade. And it was not just how he financially supported himself, how he paid his bills, as it were, although it was used to support his ministry and to care for the others around him. But rather, Paul used this as a means to make relationships for gospel ministry. It's noted in Acts 18 that this was a common bond between Paul and his partners in ministry, Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers. According to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he also saw tent making as a means to make connections and build credibility with non-Christians that he then used to preach Christ to them. So our work... In the world, what we do to make a living, as it were, is extremely important to God's kingdom. It does have spiritual significance. And we need to see it as such and figure out how we can be used through this work to serve God's kingdom. 
Now, since each of us has different gifts and callings in which we use our gifts, it's sort of difficult from the pulpit to discuss the specifics of each person's particular calling. How a teacher makes use of his or her work to share the gospel is going to be different than how a banker might do it. It's going to vary from person to person and from situation to situation. But there are some lessons we learn from Paul in this time immediately following his conversion to Christ that we should be careful to take note of. These lessons will apply to all of us. We don't want to simply stop at acknowledging that God has saved us for a purpose and that we have been given gifts and a calling. We want to push further and understand what pursuing God's calling in our lives might entail, both within the church and out in the world. We want to know the ways in which God equips us for his gospel work. So the first thing we find from these verses is that serving the Lord to the fullest of our God-given potential takes time and effort. There is preparation involved. It's often said that where God calls, he also equips. But this doesn't mean that someone becomes a follower of Christ, discerns a call, and can immediately answer this call to the fullest potential. To believe this would be to deny the time the disciples spent with Jesus learning what it meant to follow him. It would also deny what Paul tells Timothy, that those who are chosen to serve as elders should not be a recent convert. Why? Because this is a role that requires maturity in the faith, and that takes time and intentional discipleship. It takes time as well to develop your gifts. One of the things that is not immediately obvious from Acts 9 is the length of time that Paul spent preparing for his calling as a missionary for Christ. In fact, this passage seems to downplay this preparation. We see that he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues in verse 20. We find Paul proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and increasing all the more in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. At first glance, there seemed to be no preparation. Paul just launched right into his ministry. But then we have this verse, this phrase in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Well, what is meant by many days? Is that a few weeks or is it a few months? We have no frame of reference here. But Paul himself, in his letter to the Galatians, speaks of his conversion and calling in this way. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, listen to what he does. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. 
There is good reason to believe that this phrase, when many days had passed, is referring to these three years that he went into Arabia, into the wilderness. And we don't know what he was doing in these three years. We don't know exactly, but I think we can take a pretty good guess. He was allowing himself to be reoriented to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was being transformed by the renewing of his mind. He was well studied in the Old Testament scriptures and law. But he must now come to understand the Old Testament in a whole new way, in the light of Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He must relearn scripture from this perspective. And it's clear from his letters that he had. He must also learn the rhythms of grace. For so long he had believed that righteousness came by works. Think of what must have been required for him to rid himself of all of his self-righteousness and to repent of his false views of God. It wouldn't have happened overnight, right? Learning to rest in God's goodness takes time and persistent practice. But it wasn't just head knowledge. He knew that he must come to a deeper, intimate knowledge of Jesus. He must spend time communing with him in prayer. If he were going to tell others of who Jesus Christ is, then it required him to have a deep and personal relationship with Christ himself. And so it means that he spent these years becoming equipped for the calling God had placed on him before actually beginning his work. But it didn't end there. Paul will later say in Galatians, then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. If we follow the chronology in Acts, after Acts 9.31, this passage we just read, Paul will not be mentioned again until he reappears in Acts 13 in Jerusalem. Fourteen years later. We might have assumed that Paul just jumped right into ministry, but it simply wasn't the case. There was a pretty long period of preparation before he started his missionary journeys. And this should inspire us to consider how we are working to become equipped for the work that God calls us to. If you feel unequipped to do what God has called you to do, my advice is this. Get to work becoming equipped. We are not unlike Paul in that if we are going to use our gifts well, we need to have maturity of faith. We need to have intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ through personal relationship with him. We need to have a deep understanding of God's word. We need to be well versed in God's grace and goodness. We have to work to develop our gifts. If we desire to be useful in God's kingdom, then we should be eager to be well equipped in these ways. But Paul also knew how to use his trade as a means of sharing Jesus Christ. This is something that no doubt took thought and effort as well. We can think about how long we spent in school or in training to do what we do or did professionally. We all want to be competent in our work. We want to do our job well. So we no doubt probably spent countless hours studying and training and practicing. And for many, this studying and training never ends throughout their entire career. But more than likely, 
your worldly education wasn't interested in how you might use this work for the sake of the gospel. You spent all of this time learning to do your work well in a worldly sense in order that you might be competent and might make money. But have you spent time learning to apply the gospel to your professional life? Do not be mistaken. This is an extremely important aspect of what God has called you to do. It's one that requires time and effort and thoughtfulness and practice. If you aren't just going to be a lawyer or a therapist or an insurance agent, but you are going to perform your work to the glory of God for the advance of his kingdom, then it will require you to put in the time and energy to be equipped to do it. And I pray this passage would challenge us to consider how we might do this. The second thing we find here is that our, we will experience failure and pain in our path of obedience to our calling. Paul comes back to Damascus from his time in the wilderness and is immediately run out of the city. And we might downplay the significance of this event, thinking that we are blessed if we suffer persecution on behalf of Christ. That is true. But think about it. Do you remember coming out of your formal education or training program and getting your first job? Weren't you excited to, to get to work doing what you had spent years preparing for? All that enthusiasm, all of those dreams about the impact you would make, the creativity you could share, the business you could bring in, right? I can imagine that Paul came back to Damascus with fresh zeal to proclaim Christ, energized and rearing to go. And maybe he had visions of grandeur in his head about the revival that would come in Damascus as he gave witness to Jesus Christ. Maybe he came expecting to witness many conversions. He knew what the Lord was capable of, after all. And he knew that he had been called to do what he was doing. But what happened? He is met with stiff resistance. Instead of conversions, he found a mob was hunting him. Can you imagine coming out of your formal education or training program and getting run off from your first job or assignment? To say that it was a disappointing start would be an understatement. The same was true of Paul's experience in Damascus. We know this because Paul would later write about this experience in 2 Corinthians 11, where he speaks of fleeing from Damascus in the context of his own personal weakness. He states, I boast of the things that show my weakness. He remembers very clearly, even years later, the failure he experienced in Damascus. It was a humiliating experience for him. The reality is that we won't always experience success in what the Lord has called us to do. Just because the Lord has called us to a specific purpose doesn't mean that we will always succeed in doing it. And part of the reason is due to our own personal brokenness and our finiteness. We can't always see all the variables. We misjudge situations. We lack attention to proper details. We get lazy. We don't have the intellectual capacity to figure out a solution to a problem. We are deficient in physical strength or courage. In other words, we can pretty easily botch things up due to a number of different variables. 
But sometimes we even experience failure where there is no little effort and a striving to cover all the bases. The reality is that our success is dependent on God's will and God in his sovereignty does not grant us success every time. But just because we fail, and perhaps many times over, that does not mean that the Lord hasn't called us to do exactly what we are doing. Too many have thrown in the towel of serving the Lord because they have failed a time or two. Don't be discouraged by failure. Here is what we learn. Paul would not have been able to write about how God's strength is made sufficient in our weakness if he had never experienced failure. It's a hard lesson for us, but our failure might just be one of our greatest assets. It is at the point of our failure and our weakness that God's strength and sufficiency shines. And this, in turn, increases our conscious dependence on God, which strengthens our faith, reveals God's power in ways our strength never could, and it glorifies him. So our failure works to our sanctification and to God's glory. Despite our humiliation and disappointment, God intends it for good. He uses it to shape us and mold us, to refine us, to force us to learn, to look to Him and depend on Him, to trust in Him. It keeps us from becoming conceited and boasting in ourselves. Our task is to boast in the Lord. And we learn to do this best in our failures. This is part of the paradox of God's kingdom. So in all things, success or failure, we are called upon to depend on God, to give thanks to Him for His goodness and to give Him all the glory by boasting in His strength. But the Lord doesn't want us simply to depend on Him. The third and final thing I want to point out that we find here is that obedience to our calling requires partnerships in the gospel. When Paul finally goes down to Jerusalem, there's a great deal of hesitancy from the believers to warmly receive him. Frankly, they were afraid of him. You can't really blame them, right? How do they know, after all, that he isn't setting a trap for them? But here we are reintroduced to Barnabas. Remember Barnabas from... The end of Acts chapter 4, who was mentioned as a positive example for selling a field and laying the money at the apostles' feet. And we're told there that his name means son of encouragement. The fittingness of this name is once again shown here in Acts 9. What does Barnabas do? He takes an enormous risk. He's willing to give this man, who was known as a persecutor of the church, a chance to prove himself as a new convert to Jesus Christ. So he got to know him. But not only this, he put himself out there to speak on Paul's behalf to other believers. This is what an encourager does. He sees the best in people. He recognizes potential. He helps others to see these things. And in doing this, Paul was not only helped in making really important connections that he might be welcomed into the church in Jerusalem and form relationships with the other apostles, but Barnabas played a role in giving to the church the man who would become the greatest missionary and theologian it has ever seen. Paul is forever indebted to Barnabas, and a beautiful friendship and partnership is formed. 
So we find here that the Lord doesn't just intend for us to depend on Him. By His grace, He gives us one another. And He intends us to lean on one another. He intends us to be connectional. That's a word we like to use in the Presbyterian church. Here and throughout Acts and the whole of the New Testament, we learn the meaning and importance of connectionalism within the church. God didn't intend for us to be disconnected from fellow believers and from other local communities of believers. We need to understand that these gospel partnerships are not merely Christian friendships. Having deep relationships with fellow believers is so important. And we need these Christ-centered friendships for fellowship for accountability, for personal encouragement, for the sake of having others who will care for us and who we can care for. Christian friendship is so important for maturing in the faith and having relationships that stir us up to love and good works. But having relationships specific to our particular calling is also vital if we are going to be used in a way that we are able to meet our fullest potential. When we look at Paul's life, we find that he always had others around him. He had those like Barnabas who encouraged him, mentored him, helped him to make those important connections with others who was a partner in ministry with him. Then there are those like Silas and Luke who journeyed with him, ministered alongside him and suffered with him. There were those like Timothy who Paul mentored in the faith and encouraged These relationships work to strengthen all of them in their callings to serve the Lord, using the gifts that each had been given. And these relationships were all of such great importance to Paul that we find him deeply distressed at the end of his second letter to Timothy, where he lists many who have been with him in his ministry but have left for various reasons. And then he writes this, At my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. It's especially painful to him because he had a profound understanding of the importance of these gospel partnerships. The point is that Paul valued and depended on these gospel partnerships in his calling and ministry. But the importance of these sorts of relationships for our calling isn't just true of pastors and missionaries. We might think of the relationship shared between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. These men pushed each other to God-glorifying greatness. Tolkien would later, later write of this relationship saying, The unpayable debt that I owe to him was not influence but sheer encouragement. He was for long my only audience. You have to wonder what the work of these writers would have been without one another. Unfortunately, not only have the importance of Christian friendships been lost in today's culture, but so has the importance of gospel partnerships. Paul's life challenges us to consider, though, whether or not we have people who are co-pilgrims with us in our callings, who walk alongside of us and can speak into the particular aspect of our journey of obedience to the Lord. 
Do you have relationships with brothers or sisters in Christ who can help you grow and develop in the area of your calling? Who can mentor you, encourage you, correct you, stand with you through moments of rejoicing or through moments of difficulty and failure? And who you can do the same for? Do you have relationships that strengthen you? Not just in your faith, but in your calling. The Lord desires for us to be equipped in our particular callings. To come to our God-intended potential. It takes time and effort and preparation. It will include failures. It takes gospel partnerships. It is a difficult journey, but this is the means by which the Lord shapes and molds us for His glory. And I pray that we are willing to submit to him, asking not only what would you have me to do, but willing to do what is necessary to obey his calling over our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you desire for us to submit our lives to you. Seek your will for our lives. You desire for us to obey you and serve you. For in dying to ourselves and living to your glory, we find true life. Strengthen our faith that we might trust you and submit ourselves to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Following the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he might lead us. Knowing that you work all things together for good for those who love you. Give us courage. Give us perseverance. By your grace, bring to completion that which you began in us. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended. Her day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.